is a podcast about history and feminism and women and politics politics and everything really um i'm charlotte lydia riley and i'm emma london and today we're going to be talking about writing which is something we do quite a lot as historians yes i suppose um how much have you been writing lately oh god (laughs) (laughs) that's a really scary question um I've been writing... You're actually, a research leave. So. I'm on research leave, so theoretically I should have been writing lots and lots of things. Um, I have been doing... Actually, I've been doing a few different sorts of writing recently. So I have been doing um, quite a lot of research note-taking. I've been doing a lot of, you know, kind of transcribing and that kind of thing. I have written a couple of pieces for popular audiences recently, or more popular audiences than my academic work. Um, and I'm working on two academic articles at the moment. So I've been doing little tiny bits of writing. <laughs> um, but weirdly, actually, I, I mean, I think this is kind of a general academic problem. There can be a tendency, I think, to think that there's a particular type of writing that is like writing. The proper writing. Yes, writing yeah. with a, a, like, that voice was me trying to do a capital letter at the beginning. Like a capital, <laughs> writing with a capital W, the idea yeah. of sort of sitting down and... And that there's only one type of writing that actually counts properly mm-hmm. and that the rest we do, like note-taking, isn't part of it. Well, I, f- I find it really fascinating that we are actually... And I've only really started thinking about this very recently and I think it was due to an Elena Ferrante mm-hmm. um, column in The Guardian maybe two weeks ago mm-hmm. um, where she's talking about the fact that writing is how we communicate with mm. everyone. So if you think about it, most of us do a lot of writing every day, yeah. even if it's WhatsApp messages about what dinner you're going to have or mm. whether there are these great, I don't know, the Martin Luther style theses put on church doors. Mm-hmm. It's all it's all writing. Yeah, pretty no, much. that's true. I mean, I I occasionally kind of despairingly look at the counter at the top of my twitter account which says how many tweets you've mm. sent which is in the tens of thousands like yeah 40,000 or something tweets you so tweet many. a lot more than me probably 10 times as often as which I which is <laughs> horrific when I think about the fact that I'm also writing a book right and <laughs> that what well, for the first however many years of twitter these were 140 character tweets and now they're 280 character tweets like I've easily written a book easily mm. written a book on twitter and really I should have just written the book like, <laughs> like I've I've spent. You're right. I've spent a lot of time writing over the last eight years, ten years. But um, do you really think that writing those short messages take away from writing the book? No, because I think that they're not. a way of of flexing another bit of of mm. the writing muscles in your brain. That's true. That's my that's my circuits training, and the the book's the marathon. Exactly. Yeah. So so what have you been writing recently? I'm uh, partly write. I'm writing a lot of things all the time. I suppose, but I'm. I'm working on a chapter for a book, mm-hmm. um, which is meant to be about the New Labour women who were elected in 1997, or mm-hmm. basically it's about women during the New Labour era. Mm-hmm. So that's quite complicated because there's a lot of women and they do a lot of things. Mm-hmm. So it's based on interviews and biographies and mm-hmm. archival research and stuff like that. So it's kind of, it's a, it's been slow. It's a jigsaw mm. puzzle, like a lot of academic research. But this is actually for a, for a sort of popular history audience. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also been writing a much more hardcore uh, niche article for an academic journal. Mm-hmm. 
um, that has taken a lot of time to revise. I actually got comments back two years ago, mm-hmm. then promptly had a kid, uh, and then have sort of been thinking about this article ever since, and I probably have pushed the deadline about 12 times. Mm-hmm. Um, Which, you know, having a kid seems like one of the better excuses for doing that. Well, I think, I think so. <laughs> I think quite a lot of people push academic deadlines for slightly less pressing and it's also it's uh, also a journal of women's history so i was kind of thinking (laughs) that this all woman um editorial board and editing team would hopefully have some understanding Mm -hmm. and also i I could have done it sooner but i didn't want to rush it and Mm -hmm. like a lot of things you have to spend time Mm. refiguring yeah the stuff that needs to go in and I think this is one of the key aspects of academic writing which I think we're going to talk about later as Mm -hmm. well in more depth but the fact that you have to say so much in you know 10,000 words sounds enormous to Mm -hmm. anyone who hasn't done a PhD or written a book or something but it's um it's actually not a lot of space Mm. to get what you need to say in. So how do you do that without just becoming like a list of who Mm. did what, when and where? It's also, I mean, so one of the two articles that I'm... So I've written a couple of kind of pop... I wrote a piece about the history of the Open University that was in response to proposed cuts at the OU. So it's kind of using some historical knowledge that I have and some work that I've done, but it was also a kind of... Not not a call to arms, that makes it sound very kind of radical, but it was, you know, talking about why the OU is important. And that wasn't a piece that took an enormous amount of work in the moment. Like, sitting and writing it didn't take a huge amount of time. It wasn't a particularly long piece. Um, I worked with an extremely good editor, um, Stephanie Boland, who is just like a writer's dream. She edits in, she, she edits in a really kind of sympathetic way. Um, I'm sure she could probably tell it didn't take me that long to write. Um, but it was drawing on a lot of background. Like, the reason I could write it quickly was because I not only knew what I wanted to say, but I had a lot of background knowledge mm. that I could write in this, for a popular thing that didn't need footnotes, I could assert things and I could say things that I felt confident about. Whereas I'm writing, at the moment, um, a journal article which is coming from a conference paper. And in a conference paper, again, you kind of, you say things. You have yeah. evidence, obviously. I had done archival work on this. But you, you say things, and then in the question and answer, people kind of tease out some of those things or challenge you on some of the ideas you've they had. They might occasionally ask you for your evidence. Yes, exactly. Um, and this was, you know, a, <laughs> I mean, rarer, it's rarer than you would think in yeah. an academic yeah, yeah. setting. Um, and this was an article, it's an article about um, a woman who I've mentioned before, actually, Mary Agnes Hamilton, who was a Labour MP, but also a novelist. And, and the, a, famous Red Shoes. Famous Red Shoes. And so a lot of the, ev- the evidence um, comes from her books. And there's lots of quotations from her, from her novels. But the process, that I gave that paper 18 months ago and initially thought, oh yeah, I'll just write it up into an article. And in the process of doing more work about it, but also spending time doing other things mm. like teaching and writing courses and working on other more pressing deadlines I've I've basically completely shifted firstly like what I think the argument of the piece is and why I want to write it and also the way I'm using evidence has changed as well mm. like I'm making I'm not only making a different argument but I'm, I'm doing it in a different way and actually this is partly because um, towards what I thought was the end of the research process for this uh, an archivist from Churchill college at Cambridge got in touch with me and said they had some of her diaries and so suddenly this article which was about her published work became an article more about her actual thoughts Mm. or the thoughts and feelings certainly that she was committing to a private diary um which just made it like a 
yeah, a, a different piece. And then you have to basically sit back and just think. Yeah. And this is where I think maybe, because um, I'm at the stage in my academic career where I'm meant to be churning out lots of things, and I just don't really think that that's a very productive way of living your life. I mean, it's obviously very productive in a literal sense yes. that you're actually you're producing creating lots of hundreds things. of things. But I feel like there's such a rush to get things out and it doesn't necessarily work. I don't, maybe I'm not ever going to get a proper job because of this, but I feel like I'd rather spend more time mm-hmm. on a few Mm-hmm. very good pieces that I yeah. feel happy with I probably won't feel happy with them in five years time mm-hmm. but that's just the way things go but rather than like really mm. just chucking things out and hoping for the best see that's I think that's really interesting because you have had a career as a journalist yeah which is basically chucking things out <laughs> <laughs> but you know <laughs> that sounded like that's what I was implying it's not what I was implying but it it's interesting to have moved between two very different styles of writing, different motivations for writing and different approaches, yeah. and to sort of so fully personally have moved from one to the other as well, like your approach to it has changed. Yeah, I mean, I still do journalism. So I actually had a, an article in Condonas Traveller, hmm. the glossy travel magazine, um, last month, I think, mm-hmm. or the month before, about um, Nordic or festivals in the Arctic Circle in oh, the cool. Nordic countries, Yeah, which is like... I think it was 250 words, five festivals or mm-hmm. something across three pages, lots of pictures. Um, so I still do stuff like that, which is a slightly different skill. And that's kind of, I don't want to diminish journalism here, but it's a bit more like the muscles you use when you tweet. Mm-hmm. That you, you're condensing things mm. into very small chunks of information. Which is uh, a For skill. people to engage with. Yeah. Whereas these longer academic pieces are going to be read by far fewer people to mm-hmm. start with but they might also have a completely different impact on how well, look, those people see the world i mean hopefully people... someone will go to like the mm. long Boon literature festival in svalbard mm-hmm. at the end of the summer because of my article but mm-hmm. I, you know that hopefully someone else will think long and hard about women in politics thanks to mm-hmm. a much longer article i've written well also you know in obviously academic writing you're writing there's a presumption generally of some level of expertise depending yeah. on where you're publishing actually and this is quite interesting as someone who I move between fields quite a lot so my work is you know started off as diplomatic history I write some stuff that's international history so I've published in the journal of world history mm. but the article I'm writing at the moment I'll send to probably women's history review um there's I am the book reviews editor for journal of contemporary history and the only submission criteria for JCH is that it has to be contemporary, which we define as happening after 1930. And so sometimes with academic work, I think there is a there is a tendency to assume expertise in the audience, but the expertise is different depending on where it's being situated. Yeah. So if you're putting an article on like women in politics into a women's history review, the audience will be specialist in the sense that they're women's historians who care about gender, mm. presumably, but not necessarily specialists in like the context, the specific context or factual material and in that has piece. been my problem with yeah. this article that's taken so long for me to get back to part because it is a, a an international journal of women's history mm-hmm. but it's based on swedish archival and mm-hmm. interview material so i don't know what people generally know about sweden it tends to be very little mm-hmm. even if you are very interested in women's history and women's politics you might you know the, your general the general knowledge level of swedish history yeah is not 
great. No, and actually, so you have to kind of put a lot of, mm. you know, for my thesis, I was able to cut out quite big chunks of the background material because it was being examined by a Swede and a mm-hmm. South African, so they each had mm-hmm. chunks of the PhD to look at. But that doesn't work in a, you know, I could have published it in a Swedish journal and it would have looked mm-hmm. completely different. But, mm-hmm. you know, my whole point is that these things are connected. So yes. I want it to be in an international one. Hence all the extra work of trying to make, mm-hmm. condense 40 years of Swedish history into like three paragraphs. So I've got time to mm-hmm. spend on yeah. the stuff that matters. Exactly. But <laughs> so at the same time, your readers understand what context you're coming from. Exactly. And, and that they can recognise that context yeah. and apply it to the US, the British, mm-hmm. the French, whatever yeah. background they're coming from themselves. I think the other thing that's interesting about academic writing is that in Britain, certainly, within the British academic system, there's two really specific competing tensions, which is on the one hand... Like you're saying, you know, you hope with academic writing it takes a long time and it percolates for ages and we think about it a great deal. And you might present the material from an article at several conferences and get loads of feedback. And, you know, by the time it comes out and is published, people in your field might already know some of the ideas you've had and it's part mm. of a conversation. And, and you want it to have an impact on other people's work and on the way they think about the topic. And, you know, there's this idea on one hand that this is an incredibly kind of worthy sounds like a criticism i don't mean it like that but this you know that this is worthwhile this work is very kind of uh deep and grounded and worthwhile and will make an impact it contributes yes exactly it's a contribution um and the way that for example the ref which is the the thing that for people who don't know i suspect everyone listening to this podcast maybe knows what the ref is but the research excellence framework which is how university research is um like audited essentially they have four criteria from one to four and even one the lowest criteria has some sort of idea that the work is makes a valid contribution to the field Mm. like four the highest criteria is like literally changes the field internationally or something the hyperbole is incredible right so we have this idea that's what academic writing is doing Mm. on the other hand because you know in britain in order to either get hired or in order to fulfill ref criteria you have to publish a certain amount of material every four years Mm. and the same in america if you're on tenure track you have to do a certain amount of publishing there's this kind of tension between needing to think deeply about things and wanting it to make an impact and kind of just needing to get stuff out and needing to you know have your four articles or your monograph and your two pieces or whatever Mm. and it and i think the problem some of the problem is it's in the disconnect between those two things. I think I'd be happy doing either of those. I'd be happy spending ages and ages thinking about stuff and thinking, and I'd be happy kind of writing to churn stuff out because I, again, like you, I've done both of those things. Mm. I've written for money for loads of different outlets where I've kind of spent a couple of hours in the morning writing and I've been paid and I've been able to use the money to pay my gas bill or whatever. Yeah. And I've done stuff that, you know, my thesis took four years and I thought deeply about it, and I believed at the time I was making a contribution to the field. <laughs> I don't really anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really hard to do both of those things. Yeah. Um, and I think that's sometimes part of the part of a problem with academic. Writing. Yeah, and I think it's. Um, I mean, I should maybe say in my in in my defence, if any prospective employers are listening to this, mm. I will have my two articles. Yes, no, of course, no. But it's, it's also irrelevant because I don't have a, a referable job at the moment. But it's it's interesting how there's 
when you look at job interviews or like mm. job ads even these days they often talk about the stuff and you know there's there's this conversation about immediacy mm-hmm. and that you know that you need to be able to communicate and disseminate mm-hmm. and stuff your research but when it comes down to it it's it's very rarely the the criteria on which people are hired mm-hmm. So something it's a bit like interdisciplinarity and stuff, which is also always mentioned in job mm-hmm. ads, but no one actually gets hired for. <laughs> yes, exactly. People pay lip service to it, but it's not. Yeah. So there are some structural things which make academic writing more difficult than it should be, I think. And part of it is this institutional kind of worry about ref. Mm-hmm. And the churn, the, the institutional churn. Yeah. yeah. Um, which also, I think, impacts on maybe... Not not totally, but might have a particular impact on people earlier in their career before you've really found your writing voice mm. and before you've got confidence in your ideas as well. Because if you're being pushed to kind of get write stuff quickly and get it out, yeah. Also, you know, for people who aren't familiar with academic publishing, mm. the way the academic publishing system works is very different to publishing. I mean, for a start, you don't get paid. Yeah. You might, um, with books, you get money from various weird sources. So you get money from um, copyright, for example, if, if your work is fo- uh, photocopied. Mm. Um, you, you get money and you get money from uh, books being lent out in libraries. And you might get, you know, if your book goes to a certain run, you might get some royalties. But people, you know, academics all the time say, oh, you know, I got my royalties check and I can buy a Snickers or something. Yeah, it's, it's like just... £30 a year is like the yeah. maximum I've heard recently. People don't make money from them in, in the way that you would make, you know, you don't get an advance for an academic book, no. for example. And our journal articles, not only do you not get paid for them, but the journal then pays charges other people to access them. Yeah. And then the process by which your writing is published is, you know, you submit it and it goes out to peer review. So two people anonymously usually read it and they send you comments and then you deal with the comments and it goes backwards and forwards. And this can be a really, in the humanities in particular, a very long term process. Mm. Um, Not just because you might get comments and then have a baby and and not immediately kind of deal with them, but also because it, it might take nine months for you to hear back from a journal. Yeah. And then if you get quite significant changes suggested, you might have nine months to do that and then it might go back out. So again, the sort of sense of immediacy gets completely lost yeah. with academic work, particularly in history publishing, yeah. where journals might be booked up for four years or something. Yeah, and you know, they have four issues a year. Mm-hmm. And you know, the journals that I'm working with at the moment are all looking at like late 2019 at yeah. the earliest, yeah. which is a, more than a year in, in the future if everything goes to plan <laughs> with what I submit next, which you might not do. I mean, you know, coming from the, the sort of daily journal journalism I'm, mm-hmm. and having been an editor, I'm more than happy for things to take time and mm. yeah. for people to have opinions. I feel very, as soon as I submit something, I feel very detached from my work, actually. Mm. I don't, I know, I've spoken to other academics who feel very worried about publishing with um, non-academic mm-hmm titles because you don't have control over what you send in so quite often when you're a journalist you will send off a piece and Mm -hmm. the sub-editor or the editor will will change it quite dramatically Mm -hmm. um or you know they will change phrasing and stuff so it's not actually your own words all throughout when Mm -hmm. when it's finally published but it will have your name on it Mm. and sometimes that can be complicated i know cases where people have wanted to take their names off because they can't sort of stand for the Mm um content anymore but f- for me it's just 
it's, it's you might have it's my name on it but yeah. you know it's not really my thing anymore <laughs> see I'm in a funny space with that in that I've not really whenever the, my work has been changed by editors in that sort of sense it's always been sent back to me and there's always and initially when I started writing for a non-academic audience I did not really realize that I could often push back against changes oh yeah um so I was often very uncomfortable with things being changed and very kind of timid about saying actually you've kind of changed the meaning there or you know I don't mean that like I was really attached to my prose or anything I don't care in fact I love I love a really aggressive editor who makes me sound better that's brilliant (laughs) my name goes on the piece but it's written really well that's amazing um but there, you know, there are occasions, and I think particularly as well, the writing I do for a popular audience is often about politics, empire, stuff where it's enough in my academic sphere that I I need to sort of be able to stand by it broadly. But it's yeah. also stuff that people have really weirdly strong emotional opinions about, mm. and so, you know, if I write a piece about imperial nostalgia and my words are changed in a way that makes changes my argument sometimes that's the moment when I'm like oh no actually you know I was saying it like this for a reason or whatever so what what do you do when you sit down and have a blank page so I think it's funny because I spend like the entire academic year when you're teaching right and you're busy and you're doing lots of admin I spend the whole time thinking oh like if I could only sit down and write and you (laughs) you have this idea that I'm going to sit down at my desk and I'm going to open my computer or like turn on my desktop or whatever and the words just flow and onto I'll just, the page. I'll just write, and it will be like you can't see this. Listen to this podcast, but I'm doing very pretentious hand movements right now. <laughs> it's like I've got a quill in each yes, hand. Yes, <laughs> exactly. I, like, like, yeah, double fisting my, my writing with like a pen in each hand, like really going for it. Um, and of course, that's not really how it works. Um, so I, I can, I can only write well. Really, I have discovered after years of practice after like two o'clock in the afternoon to start I'm not a morning writer I'm not good at writing in the morning I need to procrastinate for six to eight hours before I can sit down and do anything and I used to think this was an enormous failing and if I was only more productive I could get up and I could write at nine o'clock and I would you know break for lunch and then come back and finish at five and I'd do eight hours solid of writing yeah and I've realized that actually what I need to do is get up answer some emails, maybe watch an episode of Frasier, have another coffee, kind of faff about a little bit, go on Twitter, have some lunch, maybe go for a run. And then eventually, like when I've exhausted everything else, do some laundry, that's a favourite. When I've exhausted everything, I then sit down and write. And then I can sit and write for five hours or something. Mm. Um, And I quite, I don't agonise over sentences. I, I just write. Like, I, I don't sit and try and rephrase stuff over and over again. I tend to just kind of write stuff. Mm. And I pretend to myself that I'll edit it later. And then I never do. <laughs> <laughs> and I submit it to terribly patient editors who then tell me that nothing makes sense. <laughs> um, but I trick myself. I pretend I'm going to spend a long time editing work. You know, I edit, I edit. I sometimes edit. I edited my PhD. I edit a lot. I think that's what I do in the mornings if mm. I need to. I'll edit in the mornings. I'm also not a very good writing in the mornings person. I've had a couple of occasions I've had like really strict deadlines mm-hmm. for stuff that needs to be in like either national press stuff or mm. or something else that's very time sensitive or I've had to write a radio script because I need to go on or something and it's mm-hmm. like it's quite painful. <laughs> I unfortunately work or write best like after midnight. 
Mm, yeah. And that is something that has also gone out the window with this mm-hmm. child that I now have. I mean, <laughs> I probably could, but I would be a terrible person. I'm not very good or pleasant when I'm tired. Mm-hmm. And I'm not particularly a great morning person anyway. <laughs> and she will invariably wake up at six mm-hmm. if I've gone to bed late. Yes. Otherwise she'll wake up later. But if I've gone to bed late, she will know and she'll get up. Of course. Um, this morning she came up at five. Mm. Um, it's So that's kind of been something that I've had to get used to mm-hmm. over the past year and a half that I've started to get back into writing after she was born. And it, it works. You just kind of have to deal with it, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Um, but I do miss those really productive hours in the middle yeah. of the night. And I have, I have twice, I think, I've done that. And it does, it is just the best time when you sit and the words come and the world is quiet and it all just happens. I think it's that, it's the silence outside the window. Like I, I, if I sort of sit down and start writing at two or three and I'll write and then I'll have some dinner, maybe eight. And then ideally what I would do is get back on the computer and write until, yeah, like two. Yeah. And like 10 till two is really, really good. Now I'm not, I'm. I'm a, t- I'm a 12 till 4. <laughs> so that's slightly too late. So I'm not either suggesting other people do this. And also, crucially, it must be noted that I would also then basically not do any work the next day. Like, I'm not saying I get up at 9 o'clock right until 2. Yeah, no. And get up and do this repeatedly. No. I, I'm not some sort of... In, I don't work 20-hour days. I don't, you know... And sleep is incredibly important to me when I'm writing oh, yeah. something difficult because that's when the thoughts I don't know how many times I've come up with the argument mm-hmm. in my head you know you just wake up the next morning and it's all sorted out when I was doing my PhD I think that's I... how my PhD topic came about actually mm. yeah <laughs> when I started my PhD like right at the beginning one of the um, academics at UCL history department said remember you know you should be working a 35 hour week because that's a full-time working week um but you you can't write for 35 hours a week and he said you know remember that thinking as an academic is is work yeah and that that thinking might occur i think the example he used was in the bath um which sometimes it does you know or it might happen when you're going for a run or actually some of that time i i think of as unproductive the emails and faffing and stuff yeah often the back of your mind you're doing something right you're thinking kind of often about other things that's one of my favorite quotes actually which I should probably have looked up so I could give it to you directly, but it's by Nick Laird, who's a poet. He might mm-hmm. be better known as Sadie Smith's husband, actually. Mm-hmm. But he wrote in The Guardian a few years ago about how he writes. They have this long-running series of yes. how, how writers yeah, yeah. write. And one of the things he said was that when he was a lawyer, he could charge for you know thinking mm. time, for yeah. going outside and having a coffee and looking at the pigeon kind of crossing the street. Mm-hmm. So he feels like that's thinking time is still relevant even though no one actually pays him for it yeah. and I think that's very true and I think that's something that PhD students maybe in particular need to hear mm-hmm. yeah definitely. but also other people um I feel yeah. like coming from this professional side of of journalism has made a lot of things a lot easier for me than mm-hmm. it has been for others mm. who've, who've done PhDs um I'm slightly detached from it mm-hmm. but I'm also aware that it, it sort of happens I've kind of been trained not to have writer's block Yes, which is good. Um, Very good. I mean, my... I think... It still happens that I sit down at a page yeah. and feel absolutely horrific about what's on it and what's mm-hmm. going to come next. But it's being in a kind of journalist job means that you don't have mm-hmm. the option not to write. I think that's the writing that I have done to short deadlines for popular audiences. It, it kind of kills that idea. You just get some stuff down and I do sometimes edit my work. But like the idea that you kind of... 
you know, just have to get some things down. Mm. And, you know, people often talk about the tyranny of the blank page. And that's not really a thing for me. I I don't... Because I don't think I think I have to start at the beginning. Yeah. I don't have a problem. I remember I tweeted once... um, so I was talking to some people about writing on Twitter and I remember I said that like, you know, the ideal writers, the best writer's curse would be like, may all of your pieces go to press with the crap first line you wrote just to get something down on the page. Because I was writing a piece about the British Empire, something for History Workshop Online and my first line was something like, historians have written about the British Empire for a long time. <laughs> because I just needed to launch into a discussion of historiography but then I, I realised I needed to go that back and change it. would be a line that I would have it. crossed out if it was a first year essay. Yes, exactly. <laughs> that at some point I would have to go back and change this essay, this, this first line. And then I checked and the first line of my PhD is literally something like the Second World War was, was bad for Britain. <laughs> I don't think it was quite that trite but it was definitely something along the lines of like, so guys, the Second World War happened. Yeah. Because it is hard and it's always going to be a bit, you know. The tyranny of the blank page uh, exists for me if there are many pages. Mm. So I was ecstatic about halfway through my PhD when I discovered Scrivener, Mm -hmm. which is like mostly used by script writers, I think. Yeah. Um, But it's incredibly good. I like to have oversights over the pages that are coming up. Mm. So Scrivener lets you divide everything up into, basically you can have a page for each paragraph and then you just compile it at the end Mm -hmm. and that makes it so much easier to write and it's made me much happier just sitting down and typing away rather than planning yeah yeah because you can move things around that's a good i've heard people recommend scrivener before as writers it does Um, cost something i don't mm. think it's very expensive it's definitely paid it's worth for me Mm -hmm. 1500 times over unfortunately i quite rarely remember that i have it so, particularly recently, mm-hmm. I had to, uh, it's really weird because it's in the bar of my, you know, the mm-hmm. toolbar in my, on my laptop. So I should just, you know, see it every day, but you've grown immune to this. So, mm-hmm. but yeah, I was, it was a pleasure when I discovered I could just cut this article up that I was working on and put it in there. But I don't think it works for anything smaller than... Maybe it does work for conference papers, it but needs to be it needs to be something substantial. The other thing I know that people who write use... Um, I've got various friends who use those kind of social media blocking things yeah. on their computer. And there was a really good essay recently by Patricia Lockwood called How, How We Write Now, How Do We Write Now? Um, and she didn't advocate specifically that, but she talked about kind of creating an environment in which you can do, do actual kind of productive writing. Mm. And, you know, she's she's she does write kind of... She she writes memoir and she's written kind of non-fiction and fiction and, and things, but not kind of academic stuff. Um, not specifically, anyway. And, and she talked about kind of creating... So she likes to read um, books and things or have even just have books around her when she's writing like not immediately open twitter on her phone and scroll through she's american and so the idea of being like you wake up and you scroll through all of these terrible kind of trump tweets and then sit down and try to write something productive just doesn't work for you like creating an environment where you can do that and you know i think for some people like a social media blocker is very useful or people who use the pomodoro technique as well i do that Um, every now and then I do sometimes if I, I need to really just recommend do something. It, I recommend it for my students. And recently mm. I had a student tell me, he, he was in his final year. <laughs> and he was, I think my, the essay he did for me was the last one he did because mm-hmm. he'd already finished his dissertation. 
And uh, he was like, I really wish I'd known about this before because the last three years would have been completely different. It's basically you set a timer for 20 minutes yes. and then you force yourself to have a break after 20 minutes. Yeah. So you're not allowed to do anything but your work during those 20 minutes. Yes. So writing for us. And then you come back to it. And I often find that that's a really good way to get into work when I need to write sooner than I yes. feel ready yeah, to. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Or when you write at the beginning of... Like, it is, it is, for me, super useful. If I'm a couple of days away from a deadline, I've still got lots of words. I have a tendency to play procrastination chicken mm. with writing, where I'll think, oh, I have a 1pm deadline, and it'll be 11 o'clock in the morning, and I'll still be kind of looking at my clock Sometimes thinking, Sometimes people like, who follow you on Twitter can follow you in... <laughs> they sometimes know that I'm playing procrastination, <laughs> procrastination chicken. But that it, Pomodoro is very useful for that, when you just can't sit down and start, because yeah. you have to do 20 minutes. So it's called Pomodoro because of those big tomato timers. Mm. That's what it comes from. And you have to sit and write for 20 minutes, but then you have to stop and have a break. And the thing it does to me, I don't know if this is necessarily the point, the thing it does to me is it makes me want to get back to my writing. Yeah, me too. And, and that's why it's useful. The, the 20 minutes of writing off on the first 20 minutes is completely useless. Yeah. But it, it, because of the enforced break, it's like reverse psychology. It's like someone telling you you can't write. It's also the fact that you are allowed to use the internet during your five-minute break mm -hmm. often. So Because I quite often find that I need to look things up or find the reference yeah. that I've sort of all of a sudden come up with that I can't note, you mm -hmm. know, that aren't available in my notes and stuff. Yeah. So it is, it sort of works yes, in yeah. a way that shutting down the internet yeah. for an entire day to work doesn't. Exactly, and it means that in the 20 minutes you can do that kind of actually quite for me, quite speedy, productive writing where you're just putting in lots of footnotes with capital letters in saying, find a reference for this. Mm. Um, or putting, I, I use caps a lot as notes to self, so I'll be writing and I'll put in a couple of uh, sentences saying like, you know, find find do, historiography article about gender development to back this up or whatever. I do red caps. Red is good. I sometimes, I highlight them in yellow. Yeah. I had a... This is a tip for from a journalist. Don't mm -hmm. ever... Don't just do them in normal colours. No. I've submitted so many times, submitted things with footnotes that say, like, find this out. Students do it in essays all the time, and I, yeah. and I can't ever really criticise them for it because it's something that I've done frequently. Yeah. I submitted a piece of, uh, this is the worst, my most recent worst embarrassing writing story, which I'm going to share so that it becomes a funny story and not something that consumes me with uh, shame. I recently wrote something for a, for a kind of popular audience um, but then accidentally got so excited I'd finished that immediately submitted it to the editor, but accidentally submitted the like very early first draft, which only had the first two paragraphs and then had a series of like bullet points about what I was going to include in the piece, which would be fine, right? Like it, it's just an error. You just attach the next file. It's totally not a problem, except for the fact that one of the bullet points just said in capital letters, say something clever here. <laughs> <laughs> which apart from anything else, I feel like is setting myself up for a, for a particularly dramatic fall when he gets to that part in the in the piece and thinks like it, she was going to say something clever here and she has really oversold that um, <laughs> so yeah so if students submit me first drafts of essays I always think yeah it's just something that happens to people yeah it's not yeah. A... I think we generally need to be nicer to each other but mostly to ourselves when mm -hmm. we're writing I think yeah. that might be a big lesson to take yes and all writing, you... all writing is writing as well. Yeah. All writing is writing. Drafts are writing. Writing, you know, writing your bullet points of what you're going to include are writing. Yeah. Writing your notes is writing. It's all writing. 
I remember noticing, really sort of starkly noting that when I was in my late teens and quite obsessed with the Swedish author Stieg Dagerman who actually killed himself mm-hmm. um, partly because he suffered from writer's block and I just couldn't understand how a man who was clearly writing all the time mm-hmm. felt he was suffering from writer's block and I think it's, you know, it's the tragedy of of mm-hmm. um, the kind of obsession of writing and content that we can get into at times. Yeah. Um, do you have any poems? I do. I have a poem uh, by a poet, a poet called Grace Paley, which is one of my favourite poems about writing because it's called The Poet's Occasional Alternative and it's about procrastinating. Oh. So procrastinating, for those of you who do not know what this means, uh, means when you are supposed to be doing some writing and you instead make a cake <laughs> or, or in her case a pie. So the beginning of the poem is, I was going to write a poem, I made a pie instead. It took about the same amount of time. Of course, the pie was a final draft. A poem would have had some distance to go. Um, She says, Everybody will like this pie. It will have apples and cranberries, dried apricots in it. Many friends will say, Why in the world did you only make one? This does not happen with poems. (laughs) Uh, And she finishes, um, Because of unreportable sadnesses, I decided to settle this morning for a responsive eatership. I do not want to wait a year, a a week, a year, a generation for the right consumer to come along. Mm. Making a pie is more immediately gratifying and people are more pleasant to you immediately. But of course, what she's actually done is written a really good poem about that. Handy. Yeah, exactly. Two birds. Two birds, one stone. Um, But I I love it and it's one of, yeah, one of my favourite poems about writing, so... Um, And our recommendations today are going to be things that are written well about writing. Mm Mm-hmm. So what have you got on that? Uh, I have got um, a, a very short book. Um, it's published, it's a, a sort of penguin short kind of, they, they occasionally publish these quite small kind of uh, texts about things by Deborah Levy called Things I Don't Want to Know, which is her response to George Orwell's essay, Why I Write. And it talks about different stages in her life. So it talks about her as a, as a, a child, um, as a, a teenager, as an, uh, an adult, and then I think as like an older woman, and different moments in her life which have come into her writing. And at one point, so it's sort of framed around this idea that she's gone away to, I think, Mallorca to do some writing, and she's thinking about this kind of context. But it's really well written. I think she's a, she's a beautiful writer anyway, but it also kind of explicitly talks about, you know, how and why she writes. And it's an interesting kind of feminine response to this Orwell essay, which is quite a bombastic, masculine, you know, I write in order to mm. to, to do things kind of thing why he was he had four reasons why he wrote and one of them was political purpose and it's very masculine and hers is much more kind of it's a a mediation on the things that have made her into a writer as a person that's really good i have a couple of things i suppose one of the things that i always recommend to people who struggle with writing or who feel like they're struggling with their writing is to read some of the paris reviews Mm. interviews with famous authors because they're always it's always so illuminating to hear that even someone like, I don't know, Hemingway mm-hmm. really struggled with that blank page and really thought most of the stuff he did was worthless. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, maybe he was right. In some <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, someone who is so lauded. Mm-hmm. Um, I recently wrote the to- I read the Toni Morrison interview, which I think mm. is much more recent. I think it might have been from like 2007 yeah. or something like that. Yeah, and yeah. she talks a lot about how to deal with... Um, having children and Mm -hmm. writing and she was saying that she got up at 5 a.m in the morning because she needed to get her work done before Mm. her kids got up and needed her um and then when she finally stopped working because she worked in a publishing house for a long time she Mm -hmm. stopped working there 
I became an, an author full time and um, her kids didn't need her as much anymore. She all of a sudden realized that she all her habits mm-hmm. were based on work and kids. And mm-hmm. now she had to kind of map out her own writing habits and what mm. suited her. And I think that's really, really fascinating. Mm. What, her first ever book, The Bluest Eye, is also one of my favorite books of mm. all time. Yeah. And I think that was published when she was 39. So we've still got time, yeah, Charlotte. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, I also, I've recently started re- reading the Hilary Mantle book, mm-hmm. her biography, autobiography mm-hmm. type of thing, um, Giving Up the Ghost. Mm-hmm. And that contains a few gems on writing. Mm-hmm. There's a section at the beginning where she sort of outlines all the good advice for writing and then ends by saying, of course, I don't follow any of this myself. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think that's, that's so true we all just have to do it you mm-hmm. just work out the way it works for you and then yes. do that yeah exactly I think maybe specifically academics but not entirely I think academics are in a funny space where they can't decide if they're writers mm. with like literary writers or whether they're writing in this more kind of practical way and it sort of puts us into a space where you sort of simultaneously want to sort of say quite pretentious things about your writing practice and then kind of feel maybe slightly like a fraud because you don't necessarily identify as a writer writer mm. and I think there's you know there's a lot to be said by just getting on with it would you be able to write fiction do you think would you like to write fiction I as a kid really wanted to write fiction and so like as I. a teenager I always thought this is what I would do actually like this, that was one of the things what I've always, I've always wanted to write a play actually and that's something I still would quite like to do mm. um I did a drama a level and I don't know, I feel like I'm better, yeah, probably better at uh, speech than description. (laughs) (laughs) Writing a play takes out all of the need to describe anything. Um, But also, yeah, I don't know, would you... I also originally thought that that was what I was going to do, and then I decided that I wanted to tell people stories, and I got more interested in the non-fiction side, and then became Mm. a journalist because of that. And then journalism spun into history there's not mm-hmm. really that much to divide the two apart from the fact that one is a li- little bit more immediate well, the journalism's a... the first draft of history right well, yeah the... and I'm also an extremely contemporary yeah. historian yeah, me too. <laughs> I would say that one of the things about writing and academic writing is that I've been more and more empowered by people like um Carolyn Stephen for example who does you know very academically rigorous writing Mm. you know she is in a history department she is a professor she is a historian but her writing is also beautifully literary yeah really beautifully written really full of this beautiful description full of also full of kind of talking about her feelings and her her thoughts and things and reading more and more work like non-fiction that's written really beautifully yeah um like um what else like Lindsay Hanley's work on on class and council estates for example it's just written really in a really Mm. gorgeous way and that has made me think more and more as I kind of go through my career that actually there's a way to write academic yeah. work in a really lyrical way almost. That's, that's I think nice. I was first kind of discouraged myself from writing fiction when I was doing, I did an international baccalaureate mm-hmm. um, in school and did both Swedish and English as mm-hmm. sort of literature things. And, you know, you just dissect text so mm. much that it becomes... Like the the pressure was just too much, and mm-hmm. then now I think I might have gone the opposite way, and sort of I feel like my absolute obsession with the evidence is mm-hmm. actually going to stop me from writing fiction. Mm. But hopefully, the nonfiction will be <laughs> readable. Mm-hmm. 
bearing in mind all of the reading or fiction that I've done, but who knows? Yes. The next episode is going to be about writers. Yes. So, so not us. Yeah, the second part of this, we're going to talk more about other writers that we like, um, what we like about them, different things we read. I mean, you know, the best advice that I give my students about how to be a good writer is to read and to read lots of things by lots of different people. So mm. that's, we're going to talk a bit about what we do read and, and what we like and... And bits about the gendering of the publishing industry as well, yes. why certain covers look the way they do. Absolutely. Um, so you can find us on Twitter at TNKPod. You can find us on the internet more broadly. If you search Tomorrow Never Knows podcast, we actually come up on Google, which mm. is, you know, very exciting. Uh, you can follow um, me and Emma on our personal Twitter accounts. And don't forget to sign up for our newsletter. We should be going out in a few days. <laughs> which has all of the footnotes for this issue on, which, you know, for this issue on writing, the footnotes are um, particularly apt in this case. So. I think so. But until then, bye. Bye. bye.